work of the Lord through the centuries, how God uh, has, uh, has worked providentially and the hand of the Lord has been there and we've been kind of combining uh, uh, some Bible study with some history a little bit there, if you will. And so we got uh, up to the third century last time, we're talking about what was going on there. All through these first three centuries, there's been pretty um, consistent persecution of, uh, of churches and Christians that's been there. Uh, there have been times where there's little bits of lulls in the uh, persecution, but uh, by and large, the uh, people of God have been facing um, the persecutions uh, to the severity of even death, of course, in many, many cases, all the way through uh, from the uh, time of uh, the you know, the Colosseum and the, the Christians and the Lions and the, the Gladiators and that period of uh, time uh, and uh, all the way on through to this uh, fourth century that we're in, in, into now, there's been a consistent pattern of uh, persecution. If you um, want to read some details of uh, accounts of specific persons that have suffered martyrdom and the uh, remarkable stories of their testimonies, one of the good books, I think it's even better than Fox's Book of Martyrs, is one called Martyrs mirrors and so if you have an opportunity to look at that uh, sometime it, it traces uh, the testimony of martyrs from the time of Christ all the way through it's a uh, it's an extensive volume but it's very well documented and detailed and footnoted and so uh, martyrs mirrors really a good reference I'm using that some in my uh, uh, study and uh, was reading uh, you know coming to tears reading some of the testimonies of the uh, individuals that uh, you know stood for Christ and how seldom it was that those that persecuted them were able to get them to recant their faith it was just very it was very frustrating for the persecutors uh, to um, to have these martyrs uh, continue to trust Christ and praise and honor him and continue to preach the gospel up until the time of their torturous deaths and so it's a remarkable uh, testimony to uh, the truth of the scriptures, you know. So, uh, but we've we've come to that place where we're in, entering into the fourth century now, which would be the three hundreds to the to the year four hundred. So, the fourth century, and uh, the last, really, the last forty years of the third century was, relatively speaking, um, there wasn't as much notice being given to the churches. Uh, and the gospel was spreading rapidly, the truth of the scriptures. People were taking the gospel. By now it had w reached well into the British Isles uh, and uh, all of that area was covered down into India, over into the uh, touching to China and North Africa, uh, and on, working its way on down through the African continent, all through Europe. All of this was happening within that uh, first three centuries. And so at the end of that third century, there's this period of relatively rapid expansion because the persecutions weren't as severe, uh, and so things were, things were happening. But, uh, uh, but this, was, this was not to last. This temporary lull in the persecutions, uh, to some degree, was not to last. And, but Jesus had warned us of that from the beginning. So you're in, you're in John 15. Take a look at verse 18, John 15 and verse uh, 18 on down through verse 25. John 15, 18 through 25. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world will love his own. 
But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Uh, if they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, uh, they will keep yours also. Uh, but all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin, no excuse for their actions. And he that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none of the man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. And so early on, our Lord was uh, giving us the heads up that as Christians, the world was not going, we're not going to be favored by the world. We're never going to be in a position where the lost uh, culture around us praises and honors and helps and assists us in getting the gospel out to the lost world. That's not going to happen, he said. You're going to face these adversarial conditions all through until he comes again. And again, in Luke chapter 6, verse uh, 26, there's, a, there's a, another way of looking at it, and it's looking at it from the opposite side of the coin, considering the opposite side of the issue. If we just be quiet and don't say anything and don't let anybody know that we're a Christian and don't try to give the gospel out and never give a gospel track out and never speak to our uh, co-workers about the things of the Lord or, or our family or anything. Just keep it quiet and do like the world wants you to do and just keep your religion to yourself, so to speak, as you often hear said. If we're like that, uh, Luke chapter 6 and verse 26 somewhat addresses that position, that condition. He said, Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. So uh, he said, if you're not being, uh, you know, attacked, if you're not being opposed, if the world is speaking well of you as a Christian, you're really not doing your job as a Christian. So uh, we, we ought to have the world speak well of us as far as our testimony, as far as our, you know, you pay your bills, you're consistent, you do what you say and say what you do, you're honest, you have integrity. I'm not talking about that. But I'm saying if the world praises us uh, and um, our testimony goes on and we get to know them and they get to know us and there's never any uh, point at which we confront them about their condition, then he says, uh, if they speak well of you, that's a problem. Woe to you that uh, when a world speaks well of you because they spoke really well of the false prophets, the ones that didn't have the truth. Remember what some of the false prophets said? They came to the Micaiah and they said, Micaiah was the good guy, you know, he was the one guy that was standing up for truth. Nobody liked Micaiah, the king hated him, the government hated him, everybody hated him, all the governor's cabinet hated him, all the people around the king uh, hated him. And so uh, Micaiah, you know, he got approached by all the false prophets, and they, you remember what they said, they said, look, Micaiah, just keep your mouth shut, just, you know, go with the flow, you know, just come up with something uh, nice and, you know, do a nice little sermon there and, you know, be nice and say things nice and uh, 
don't prophesy evil against the king and don't prophesy that the bad things are going to happen just because we have ignored the word of the Lord. You know, don't do that. Don't, don't be so negative, you know. And so, and you remember what they had said, oh, king, you know, go and conquer. You're going to do it. You know, it's all, we're, we got this thing in the bag. No problem. You know, they were positive thinkers. Yeah, they, you know, they were you know, Norman Vincent Peale and they had, you know, they had it all worked out and you're going to, you know, every way and every day and every way things are going to get better and better for you, old king. And so the false prophets are, you know, everybody's liking that. That's a positive message, you know. They're, they, yeah, they're the Joel Osteens of their day. You know, they love, they love Joel. He said, oh, it's got a good word for us, you know, make us so happy, you know, and everything is good and, yeah, and that. So they told my guy, just shut up and don't, you know. So he goes in there, you know, goes in there, and that's what he does. He just, yeah, you're fine, everything's good, you know, I'm with these guys. I just joined the ecumenical council, and, you know, we're on board, and, and the king, you know, the king shakes his head and says, my guy, you're lying, <laughs> you know, you're lying. He said, just tell me what you really think. And so he did and uh, lost his popularity really fast. So, yeah, yeah if, if everybody speaks well of you and, and Micah had gone with the flow there, uh, then um, something's wrong. He's not doing what God called him to do. So, and you and I as Christians know that, uh, you know, when we confront people with the gospel, our, our loved ones, our friends, we know that that uh, doesn't always go really smoothly. And at times they, you know, are offended and bothered and upset uh, that, uh, you know, we, that the gospel includes, uh, you know, the fact that God judges sin. And no, nobody wants to hear that. So, uh, so that's what's, uh, you know, happening. The Christians are going out. They're preaching the truth. They're uh, like Brother Santiago, you know, they're, everybody they run into, they're talking to about the Lord. And the Bible says they went everywhere preaching the gospel. When they got scattered out of Jerusalem, they went everywhere preaching the gospel. Didn't say they went ever, everywhere and settled down and just, you know, adapted to the culture. It said they went everywhere preaching the gospel. And so, obviously, the thing that's going to happen next is there's going to be some persecution takes place. And that was the case. So this little lull in the persecution that ha happened for, you know, 30 or 35 years it was really uh, toward the end of the 3rd century and a little bit just starting into the 4th century. It was quiet. The first two years were pretty quiet um, until Diocletian was convinced. Diocletian was then uh, in the 4th fourth, fourth, fourth century. He was by then the uh, emperor of Rome. And so he had been raised by his father who had lived in uh, Britannia, who lived in what we now know as Britain. He lived in that area and had been exposed to the gospel, the Diocletian's father had been exposed to the gospel because the uh, Welsh were very receptive and, and the gospel, you know, was planted in among the Welsh very early, even in the second century. And so it, the gospel had spread into the British Isles. And so Diocletian's father was exposed to it. And he had uh, a general uh, sense that there probably was but one God. He had, there's no indication that we can find anywhere, at least that I've read, that, that Diocletian's father ever converted to, to Christ. And, and from the indications of what his son was, it's apparent that he didn't. But at least he had some exposure to the fact that, uh, you know, the, the Christians preached one God. So Diocletian had that in his, his background. Uh, and, um, and yet uh, he was, you know, and so he was at least... Uh, he was at least tolerant of the Christian's point of view, and he hadn't, in, up to that point yet, he had not taken any actions to, uh, uh, that, that, uh, were, that opposed the uh, Christian, uh, the spread of the gospel. So, so uh, that didn't occur until he got 
he, got, uh, he was urged by the pagan priests. And uh, why would the pagan priests be all of a sudden bothered about the Christians? Uh, well, the, the gospel was spreading and people were changing and people were leaving the polytheism of Rome and the pagan priests' jobs were, you know, uh, they were questioning the, you know, the security of their jobs is what it was. And so these pagan priests were uh, convincing Diocletian to, uh, to take action against the Christians. And so he did. He, he didn't have any particular affection one way or the other for them. So he agreed with the pagan priests and took action against the Christians in the edicts. There were five edicts that came forth, starting with Diocletian, and then he was co-regent with some other a couple of other men uh, in the empire at that time, and so uh, the uh, Galerius was one of them. Uh, but uh, Diocletian was one that started the ball rolling, and each each uh, edict that that followed the the last one was more severe than than the previous one. So the first one was uh, issued in what uh, how we would date it with our present calendar that didn't have the calendar we have now. But if we date if we backdate our present calendar, it would have been February twenty four. Uh, 303 A.D. Uh, that was the first of the edicts. And so what it said basically was that uh, Christian buildings were uh, to be torn down, Bibles uh, were to be confiscated and burned, all Christian writings were to be burned, and all the civil rights of anyone that identified themselves as a Christian were to be rescinded. All their rights as a Roman citizen as a Christian, were to be rescinded. So that was how the edicts went. And as time went on, tortures were devised, and they were, uh, in hope of the the torture, producing renunciations, uh, Christians renouncing their faith and, you know, adopting again the polytheistic faith of the Roman Empire. First to, to be targeted in these edicts were the pastors of the churches. And there were Numerous churches by this time in Rome and in uh, any metropolitan area went, there was, uh, you know, many, many uh, congregations of believers. They were spreading rapidly. So in Rome, there were many pastors, many churches, uh, but they were the first targets of the persecutions and the torture. It was thought by the Roman leadership and the pagans, it was thought that the, uh, if the pastor would renounce his faith, all of the congregants or many of the, most of the congregants would probably follow along without uh, having to be, uh, you know, subjected to the torture. But uh, it really backfired on them. It didn't happen. Most pastors did not and uh, died for their faith. And the remarkable thing that uh, the pagans couldn't get over was that the moment they'd take one pastor out of the picture, another person who was uh, serving in some capacity in ministry as a presbyter or, uh, you know, involved in any form of leadership in, in these congregations would step up and take the pastor's position and preach the gospel. So one after another they were doing this. So what they were hoping to accomplish by their torture and by their persecution was backfiring on them. But there were some uh, bad side effects that did occur uh, in Christendom, in Christianity, as a result of these, um, these horrible persecutions widespread. Of course, it did necessarily blunt the spread of the gospel. Of course, it had to have that effect when you were, uh, it was illegal even to, you know, to meet in a congregational setting. It was illegal to teach, it was illegal to have a Bible, and so... Uh, of course, it slowed things down tremendously, having those persecutions go on, uh, but it didn't stop them. Uh, Diocletian titled himself, during this course of his actions, he titled himself, 
Lord and Master of the World. That was his uh, self-described title. He didn't live too long after that. Um, he didn't live very long after that, so uh, two or three years. And, but that, at that point, he described himself that way. I'm Lord and Master of the World, uh, you know, uh, and he claimed divine honors. He claimed divinity, and he said he was the vicar of the god Jupiter, that he was the voice, the human voice of the god Jupiter. So that's where he was coming from. The fifth edict required uh, all who wanted to buy anything. This almost sounds like the, a precursor to the Antichrist. All, all who wanted to buy anything had to first offer a public sacrifice to a heathen god. And, of course, the, that cut out all the Christians. They weren't going to offer a public sacrifice to a heathen god in order to buy anything. So, you know, they were unable to buy food, the basic needs of life, and so the persecutions went on. The, the effects, of course, were suppression. It also, another effect that was uh, unforeseen was the, uh, that the martyrs, among, after a period of time, the, you know, this is, you're in the fourth century now, and you have martyrs that date back to the time of Christ. You, you have known martyrs that uh, were honored by, you know, the Christians that appreciated their stand for uh, their faith. But what was beginning to occur was that these martyrs were being more than honored. They were being uh, venerated. And uh, then they were become, being, be, uh, coming to be seen as mediators between uh, God and man. So they begin, as I said last week, they were some segments of uh, error in the Christian uh, in the Christian world at that time, there were some segments of them that were beginning to see the martyrs as uh, mediators to be prayed to. And so the prayers to the saints was something that had its uh, origins in this fourth century. And then there were also the, uh, which is common today in uh, Romanism and in some other, uh, several other religions, a number of other religions, uh, common today is the worship of relics, uh, pieces of the cross and so forth like that, or bones from the saints and all these kinds of things the worship of relics and the preservation of relics. So that was uh, an error that was taking place too. So we, get, we come up to, you know, through Diocletian and the five edicts and the tortures and, the, and all of the suffering. But through all that, the Bible believers are, you know, continuing on and continuing to reach people. And uh, the gospel is powerful because everyone knows that if you are willing to face death for your faith, that you must have something. It's got to be more than just a religion to you, you know. It's got to be more than just, oh, this is something I practice because, you know, it just makes me feel better. They know that uh, these guys have something that's real, and they can see the power of their testimonies in their willingness to even lay down their lives for their faith and lay down their lives for others. So along through all that uh, comes the time of Emperor Constantine. Emperor Constantine is... Uh, he lives from 274 to 337 A.D. He's the actual emperor of Rome. He becomes emperor in 312, and he, he reigns in Rome till 337 in the Roman Empire, till 337. He was one that moved the capital from um, Rome to Byzantium, which became, uh, he renamed it Constantinople after himself. He was not a uh, he was not a humble man by any means, <laughs> uh, though he professed to, to have been uh, converted. But um, he named Constantinople after himself and moved it to the eastern 
He moved, uh, you know, east from where he was. It's what's now Istanbul. Anybody ever been to Istanbul, Turkey? All right, nobody yet. When you go on your next trip to Holy Land, you need to take the extension, go over to see the seven churches of Asia, and one of them will be, one of the stops will be Istanbul, Turkey there. So uh, you're going to see that one of these days, and you'll know that's where Emperor Constantine uh, moved the capital and where he uh, rearranged things, and the uh, empire was united, eastern and western, uh, there to some degree. Uh, until the Greek Orthodox split, and so you have that coming up later, though. So you have uh, uh, Emperor Constantine there. He's going into battle. Uh, he, he's going into, um, there's a, um, a rivalry there, and uh, Maxentius is the general that is coming against him. Uh, they, um, they face a, um, a great uh, conflagration, and they, uh, Constantine sees, or his testimony is that he sees in the sky a flaming cross and the words in the Latin tongue that say, by this sign conquer. So he says, I see that, and he says, I know Christianity is it. And so it was, he was victorious in the battle, and he comes back to uh, Rome victorious. And he declares Christianity the official religion. First, first he releases, he frees all the Christians. He, uh, he declares them uh, their uh, religion true. And he says that he is uh, going to make uh, Christianity the state religion rather than the pagan uh, worship that they had, uh, that they had been uh, uh, all part of since the time immemorial. So that's what occurs there. And so in 313, he issues what's called the Edict of Milan, the Edict of Milan. That's where the um, uh, Christianity is adopted and as a state religion. He even, he even uh, agreed to free slaves that would embrace Christianity or his form of Christianity. And so uh, that occurred as well. He took the uh, uh, Servetus, the uh, pastor of one of the biggest uh, congregations of Christians that were uh, still found there in Rome, and he gave him a palace to live in. It was one of his palaces that become the parsonage, you know. Uh, and uh, they now were were uh, you know having the opposite effect of the persecutions. They were having full freedom, full governmental support, and all of this was taking place in a matter of uh, you know a, a, just a brief period of time. So uh, now Catholicism today still reveres Constantine as a great Christian although there's no evidence in history anywhere of any genuine conversion on his part. On his deathbed, he, was, uh, he had the priest baptize him. Uh, the, uh, they weren't called at that time yet priests, but uh, uh, he had the, uh, the bishop baptize him uh, just before he died in order to uh, wash away his sins and, and uh, his hope of heaven. But there's no evidence that he was ever genuinely repentant and converted uh, to uh, biblical faith, so, uh, but he is he is revered among Catho uh, among Catholics as the founder uh, of the. Well, he doesn't. They don't call him the founder, but he literally is the founder of the, of the Catholic uh, faith. It's the Catholic religion. So, so uh, there's a number of changes took place. Um, he hoped that his hope for Christianity really was to unify the empire, and that's what he wanted. He wanted to bring East and West uh, completely into harmony. He wanted uh, all the different factions to work together. And so his idea was that Christianity would do that. He'd seen the unifying power of Christianity among Christians. And so 
Uh, his belief was that uh, this would occur on a political scale uh, with the nation. So uh, all along he attached, uh, in his mind, he saw the sign of the cross or the cross. He thought that it had, he believed that it had magical powers of some sort. So, uh, but the thing was with Constantine, he only showed favor to the establishment church that had been, and remember we talked about that already, there already had been a movement toward a centralizing authority and there had been a movement toward uh, these big churches, these um, uh, metropolitan churches as they called them and they called the pastors of those the metropolitans and they had kind of an extra layer of authority so to speak. So all that was starting, is already in place you know, to some degree uh, when, um, when Constantine uh, ordered Christianity to be state religion so he is meeting with these, uh, he's meeting with these who've already begun to compromise, who've already, you know, seen the advantages of trying to go with the flow and be part of the culture and all that. So he's working with those, and they're the establishment crowd. Those are the state churches. Those are the approved churches, so to speak. But there's always the other bunch of them. The, the, uh, at least as many or more, numerically speaking, are, are uh, dissenters dissenters from this position. They already have them going. They already, already had been protesting the, you know, what was going on in the metropolitan churches and they'd already been concerned about the drift away from biblical Christianity before this. And now it's, you know, now there's no holds barred. It's just all, uh, it's all coming about. So here's the, you know, here's the condition that uh, uh, we find when uh, the Donatists become uh, prominent. Now, the Donatists, we talked about the Novatians, you know, the Montanists and the Novatians, who were groups that were what we would call Baptists. They were Anabaptists. They believed very much, uh, you know, doctrinally where we're at. And so uh, here's the, the, the next iteration of that is a group called the Donatists. They're following Donatus. They're followers of Donatus, who was a North African pastor who was a who was a nonconformist, he was, you know, a fundamentalist, so to speak. He, he believed in the purity of the scriptures, and he, he insisted that, uh, you know, we, we, take, um, we take the scriptures over pragmatic point of view on things. So, so it became, um, you know, his, his name got attached to the Anabaptists uh, as a whole, really, and, and they became known as the Donatists. They were, they were viewed by the establishment churches as a sect, as a schism, as a, as a heretical group because they didn't go with the flow of the state religion and so there, there they were. So here you have this state religion now, this government and religion married together. Now the government would support the church and the church would support the government and the government would take care of the salary, the pay of all of the you know, uh, bishops and so forth of the congregations. They'd pay for that and the taxes would be uh, levied for the, uh, for the churches, they would give them buildings, they would provide for them all of their needs, and all of this seemed hunky-dory for a, a little while. Uh, and so there's changes now taking place. Uh, and here really are, it's more where the most egregious uh, departures from biblical Christianity took place is in this, is in this uh, fourth century because they're, they're, um, they're, Christians are becoming now a political force. They're beginning to lay down the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and they're beginning to be, have put in their hands the sword of politics and the, a lot of the you know, metropolitan type and the centralized uh, leadership is becoming politically oriented, you know. And so 
and any of you that have, uh, you know, have looked into any detail at er, of early Catholicism can see the power that is connected with, with Catholicism. It's greater than the power of the state in many, in many of the cases, in many of the periods down through the Dark Ages. You have the, uh, the leadership and the, the Pope and the, and the archbishops and the bishops in, in Catholicism had a huge amount of political power, and they had armies, and they had uh, weapons, they had force, you know. So it was like Islam, you know, they had the same thing. By the time we reached the period of the Crusades, you have Catholicism and Islam, and both of them are using the power of the sword. They're po political organizations more than religious organizations, and they're, those two are married together, uh, religion and politics, and there is the, you know, the Crusades, the back and forth with who, you know, who, who has the Holy Land and, uh, and the, um, the Mohammedans on one hand and the Crusaders of the Roman Church on the other hand. The, the Donatists were never Crusaders. We never got to get the, you know, the shield and the cross on there and the helmet and the horses and we never got to go slash heads and all that. No, we were just persecuted. We were just hanged and we were just, uh, you know, drawn and quartered and we were uh, driven to valleys and driven into caves and so forth. That's where our crowd was, you know. We never got to get in on any of the, uh, you know, yeah, we're going to go out to the Crusades and win the Holy Land back. No, that was the Roman Catholic Church altogether. That was never your heritage. That was never the Anabaptist position at all. In fact, Anabaptists have never uh, taken up sword and uh, had the philosophy that we spread our faith by the sword, by the power of force. That has never been a position that Anabaptists have held because it's never been a biblical position. So uh, Roman Catholicism has held it and used it with great effect over centuries. Uh, uh, Islam has used it. Uh, the Buddhists use it. The Hindus use it. Uh, the power of force, the power of politics, the power of the army. But Bible-believing Christians have never used that, have never taken up arms to, uh, to uh, uh, promote their position, pr promote their faith. So, uh, so that's what's, uh, what the case is now. You've got Christianity becoming a political force. You've got Catholic ministers now being paid by the state. You've got churches starting to fill up with unbelievers because they're just being baptized into the church and they're bringing in with them their views on uh, other gods and so forth. Uh, all of this is happening under Constantine's reign and he's got all these new subjects that are identifying as Christian, so to speak, uh, and, you know, using the sign of the cross extensively on their uniforms and all those kinds of things, but um, you, you have all that going on. Now, the, the Constantine did, uh, you know, dictate that it, it was codified, codified, I guess is the way you pronounce that word, it was codified that, that uh, Sunday was the day of worship, it was uh, the, the Lord's Day, and so that was, but that was something Christians were already doing from uh, the time of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was already there. It wasn't uh, something that, uh, that Constantine changed the day. It was just a recognition that it was okay now to worship on Sunday, uh, something Christians had been doing in, in many cases in secret for uh, some time. So, uh, so you have that, uh, you're at that place. We're going to stop it off there. We, we remember as we close up, we, we remember that Satan's devices against the church in the first century were to kill the Christians. In the second century, it was trying to destroy the scriptures. Now, in the third century, it was trying to alter the scriptures and change them. Here in the fourth century, there, the effort is to try to change the very nature of the church. And so that's Satan's work uh, down through the ages, as well as the Lord working. Satan's is 
at work as well. So we didn't have time to, to get into the remainder of the scripture I wanted to uh, touch on about the, uh, the martyrs and, and, um, and that, but we'll, we'll pick it up there next time. Let's go ahead and, uh, and uh, get on our knees in prayer if you remember our, our missionaries and then...